Colossians 3 is where we're turning again this morning, and verse 8 is where we will be spending our uh, time and attention. Verse 8 of Colossians 3. There is a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy. I don't know if you've read it recently or lately or at all, but he gives us kind of a big picture view of what the remedy is for the sins that we're going to find out here in verse 8 of Colossians 3, and that is anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, these kinds of things. In that story, there's a young prince who is described by his own father as, oh, most inflammable rabidash, which is a good term. I mean, that's just fantastic. When you want a father to talk to a son like that, and he was inflammable, and we'll see how that even relates to our study in Colossians 3, 8, very, very uh, practically. But he, Prince Rabadash had a, a burden, and you can read the story to find out what it was. But when he was being reproved much later by the Christ figure in the, in the Narnia uh, saga or stories by Aslan, Aslan reproves him and says, essentially, I was going to bring the book this morning, but I forgot to grab it. He said, Rabadash, what are you angry about? Who has done you wrong? And what are you proud of? Or why, how did, what are you proud of? What do you have to be proud of? Or why are you, how does he say it there? You have to read the book to find out. But he Aslan identifies two issues. The, the, the idea that, that somebody has wronged me, that somebody has offended me or upset me, or somehow I have not gotten what I deserve or I want or what I expected, and that result, resulted in anger and, and violence and murder, threats and violence, that Rabadash was going to commit. But also, Aslan identifies probably even the more serious thing, and that is pride. He says, get rid of your pride. What do you have to be proud of? That's another sin that his father, who was the king, obviously, feared in his son, Rabadash. He is inflammable. He is young, and he needs to cool his temper in the desert rather than boil his energies in the capital city, waiting for him to become king. Anyway, there's so much going on in that story, The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis, you can read about. But those ideas of anger, which really come to pride, comes down to pride, thinking of ourselves too highly. If we do those things, we will be given to these sins, which Paul says we should put away from our lives. We'll see this <clears throat> negative list here, but in just a few verses, verse 12 and following, we'll see what is the... Not so much the antidote, but what is the opposite? We're supposed to put off these other things. Remember back in verse 5, it says, Consider yourself dead to sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed. Put those, you know, consider yourself dead to those things. They have no attraction to you. Well, here he says a different list. has a different list going on. Let me read the passage for us, beginning at verse 1 and through verse, I don't remember, verse 11, I guess, is what we have, just to, to remind ourselves of the, of the context. And we'll look at verse 8 specifically. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. 
On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you, put, or, since you put off the old man with his evil practices and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. It is helpful to remember, even as we approach these lists, to recognize Paul is not giving us a to-do list in order to advance our salvation or advance our standing before Christ or before God the Father. He says these things are works or these things are characters, or characteristics or attributes that should be true of yourself because of what Christ has done in your life, because Christ has made you righteous, declared you righteous in him. There's nothing that we can do to add to our standing in Christ. It is available. And he, Paul has spent a lot of chapter 1, almost all of chapter 2, and even the beginning of chapter 3 describing the glorious benefits of being in Christ and the obvious disaster to not be in Christ, that we would be at enmity with God, that we would be enslaved to our sin, that we would be separated from Christ and separated from each other, and that we would have no hope in this world. He says a lot of those same things in Ephesians 2, of course. But he says, because of what Christ has done, therefore, here in verse 1, because of those realities, therefore, you should set your mind on things above, or keep seeking the things above, set your mind on things above. Why? Because our whole life is bound up together with Christ himself. Why should we take Christ? If our life is, is tied with Christ and Christ is with us wherever we go, why should we say, Christ, hey, come with me over into this, this little sinful area for a little bit, a little bit, and, and it's okay, I'll, I'll be right back. Christ goes with us wherever we are. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And Paul says in Ephesians 4 and other places, do not quench the Spirit, do not violate His deposit that he's made to you. Don't squander his resources. He has saved you. He's redeemed you. Your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Our life is attached to him, and it's like we don't have a life apart from Christ. It's not enough to say, I'm a Christian, come to church on Sunday, maybe even Wednesday night, and maybe read the Bible once or twice a week, and the rest of the time living for your own pleasures and desires and spending your time on all kind of whatever it is, even if it's seemingly good, you have food, you love food preparation, and you spend all your time with that. Well, that's not evil, but wait a minute. Are you living for Christ? Are you doing all in the, in the name of the Father? Are you doing, like it says in, in uh, verse uh, 17, Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Are you living with your orientation totally set on him? Now, it's not to say you can't enjoy a college football game on a Sunday afternoon or whenever they play, I have no idea, or or the Monday night football, or the I think there's baseball or something going on right now, too. It's not that you can't talk about those things and, and think about those things, but in the context of what does Christ mean? Where is Christ in these things? How, how will you honor and glorify him? How will even your example, going back to the idea of, of athletic competition, will, how will your Christ-likeness be manifested in the way that you talk about the referees or the umpires? Or, you know, that bad call. Or, or you know, how, will you be the one who throws a 
a piece of furniture through the flat screen TV in your anger and in your wrath because of what just transpired. Is that Christ-likeness? What are we about? We, Christ is our life. We looked at verses 5 and 6 and 7 uh, in these last uh, few weeks that here he lists the sins. This is to borrow uh, Dr. John MacArthur characterizes this verse, this uh, list in verse 5 as wrong ways to approach love. The world seeks after love and acceptance and affection and intimacy in such evil ways, such controverted ways, uh, immoral ways, impure, unclean ways, and and yet they don't feel any shame over these things, whereas we who used to walk in those ways, he says in verses 6 and 7, those used to characterize us as well. Consider yourself dead to those. I am dead to them, and they are dead to me. There's no affection. There's no uh, attraction that they have. There's no authority that they have. There's no interest that I have toward those things that used to characterize us, that used to be our life and our livelihood. He says, consider yourself dead to these things. Verses 6 and 7 says, God's wrath is coming on those who do these things and liars. And these lists in, in verses 5 and 8 are not complete lists. They're not exhaustive. They're not comprehensive. They are, he's speaking one set of, of tasks, uh, specifically even, and th this is kind of the underlying reality. So many Gentiles are in this Colossian church in the first century, Gentiles who were given to all these sins. And, and, and even for many of them, the religious Gentiles would have regarded their, their, immorality as worship and would have offered their their bodies as as uh, sacrifices as it were not to god most high but to the gods that they have in their own fancy and would regard the impurity as something that was was a means of advancing purity this is so controverted so on its on its head and so paul says especially you gentiles you need to put off those things that used to characterize your life, used to be what you boasted in, what you found your identity in, found your religious expression in. And isn't that what it's become today, by the way? A religious expression of, of sexuality that has just so controverted God's wonderful provision. There's, there's all this, this aber, aberrant uh, behavior in the name of really self-worship, idolatry. This is something I want apart from God. God has no jurisdiction over me. He has no claim on my life. This is my body, my choice. I can do what, what I, with, what, with it what I want, which is wrong. It's not. We are bought with a price, therefore we should glorify God in our bodies. The wrath of God is coming. It used to characterize us as well. We should not be boastful and proud and say, well, I'm better than those people over there because I never did that. No, we, we're as vile as anybody else. We all need a Savior. Here in verse 8, if that list in verse 5 could be described as uh, uh, variations or or wrong expressions of love or wrong seekings after love, verse 8 would, would describe the wrong approach toward hate or enmity or strife or conflict, the wrong way to handle these things. Because I tell you what, and I have a, a love-hate relationship maybe with the book of Job because so many of the best verses that we talk about, like um, man is born for trouble, as sure as sparks fly upward, Job didn't say that. It's one of his friends. But it is true. Some of the things they said are true. Trying to find out what, what, are, they, what are those friends arguing that's true. And even Job, God says to, his, to the friends, you did not speak about me as rightly as my servant Job did. And I think, wait a minute, Job, he had some 
some complaints. And it's not that God, anyway, not to, not to get into Job, but that idea of man is born for trouble or there are just troubles that we have with each other. We have problems. We have conflicts in our lives. So how do we deal with them? Well, in our unsaved, unregenerate, Gentile kind of flesh, we would stand up for our rights. We would let, let it go. We would, um, you know, that whole thing for eye for an eye, we would make sure we get our fair share. Or like uh, Shylock and the Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's thing, we want our pound of flesh. We will get our vengeance. No. Many people would say, this isn't fair. This is not just to what, what I'm getting right now. And I think I've told this story before. I won't go into all the details. But the, the point is, we don't get what we deserve. And that's a good thing from God. And that's really ultimately with, with whom we have to do. Forget about the IRS. Forget, and I mean, pay your taxes and all, but forget about the threats that they can have about, upon your life. Forget about what opposing army that may come into America may, may bring us. What is your standing before God? How will you give an account of your life to him? That should be our ultimate concern, ultimate idea of worship and attention. The way that we interact with people, the way that we respond to difficulties, trials, and, and distresses shows us or reveals, really, what is in our heart. You know, the whole idea of, I don't think I have a cup except this little one right here. If, if you have a cup full of water, full to the brim, and somebody knocks it, what's going to come out? Water, because that's what's inside the cup. The, the distress or the bumping does not change the water or change the milk into water or the water into wine or whatever analogy you want to have. The conflict only reveals what's in the heart, what's inside the cup, as it were. So Paul says, what's inside your cup? If you have been made in Christ, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, when you are upset, when you have a conflict, when you have a disappointment in your life, what should characterize your life? Not this. And verse 8. And we think, well, why is so focused on the negatives? Well, because it's helpful for us to, to see the, the glorious, and I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, the inglorious, the, the embarrassing, foolish, destructive tendencies of this world in answering conflict versus the beautiful, glorious attitudes and attributes and actions that Paul will describe here in verses 12 and following. What does it mean to live in Christ? But first he says, here in verse 8, and this is our attention this morning, is to recognize, but, but, instead of those things, instead of walking in those sins anymore, no, but now, things are different. You are in Christ. Your life is changed for the better. But now, you also, not just the other persons, I mean, we can, we know all about what other people need to do to get right with God or, or grow in their Christianity or Christ-likeness. We can give, we can, you know, opine a long time about what other people need to do. But Paul says, you, you also. Don't just be thinking about other people. Think about what you need to do in your life. How can my life, my life be different for God's glory, specifically in relation to these offenses or these, what Jesus described as stumbling blocks, opportunities to sin, opportunities or invitations to sin. It's inevitable, Jesus says in Matthew 18. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom they come. And he goes on and describes about the whole thing about millstones and, and water. And you can read Matthew 18 to find out what does Jesus say about millstones and water and stuff. But he says, when you have conflicts, don't be characterized by what used to be your modus operandi, right? The, your, your method of operation. MO, by the way, can stand for both of those things, modus operandi or, or method of operation. But this, these things used to characterize our lives. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. This is how we resolved our conflict. We resolve it with with uh, punch-ups or, or fisticuffs, as it were. Remember Alistair Begg talking about his kind old Scottish grandma, a believer, d- delightful believer, but she loved punch-ups in cowboy movies or what she, you know, when they're fighting. And she would even, I remember him describing, she would even kind of move with the with the actor, and then when they were punching, it's a little old lady in the wheel in the in the chair. But we oftentimes resort to physical violence, or in this context, because physical violence is so, well, I can't lick you, so I'll I'll just resort to words. And isn't that what, and abusive speech, we see slander, abusive speech, and then verse 9, do not lie to one another. Isn't that how we see it nowadays, uh, the cancel culture, as it were, and other cultures, censorship, which is going just all over the place? Isn't that the way, if you can shut down speech or if you respond and, and, and talk louder or shout louder than other people, then you've won the debate, right? No, it's like truth doesn't even matter. Uh, the, the facts uh, have no bearing on the conversation because we're not dealing with facts. We're dealing with emotion. We're dealing with, with tempers. We're dealing with uh, 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 perspectives and, and not with truth. Well, we need to deal in truth. We need to deal boldly humbly, kindly, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love or truthing in love, we, we grow in respect to our salvation, we grow in respect to Christ, and we help other people. We speak the truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, preach the word in season and out of season. So when people are wanting God's word and when they don't want God's word, you hear different preachers uh, and uh, different folks saying uh, when they're talking with unbelievers, well, I don't believe God's word. And so is that an expectation then that you'd put the book away and argue from your own experience or your own wisdom or your own whatever? Don't put the book away. This is the power of God and the salvation. This is the one that I think Bodin Balkum describes it this way. This is the sword of the Spirit. If people don't believe in the sword, then what you do? You cut them. You cut them with it. You bring the Word of God to bear on the situation, not rudely, but the cutting that brings healing. The cutting that brings uh, repentance and and faith. Paul says our lives should be different, not characterized by the world, not characterized by our old manner of life. He says, lay them all aside. This idea of laying aside really has to do so much with uh, uh, clothing, garments, and so forth. Remember when uh, uh, Stephen was being murdered there in Acts 7 at the very end of the chapter, and certain of those who were stoning him and the witnesses also that were there uh, laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, Acts 7, 58 says. So there's that actual physical you know, taking off cloaks, setting them aside, and so you could do your work. And the work there was an unrighteous murder of, of uh, Stephen, faithful Stephen. But this idea of laying aside and uh, in the context of garments has more of a, a figurative meaning. There are so many times in Scripture where character or attributes of a person are described as a garment or clothing. For example, Job, again, says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. So you see, whoa, he's talking about clothing there. God himself uh, says uh, about himself, uh, Isaiah 59, verse 17, he put on righteousness like a 
uh, breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So you can see positive and negative. Uh, also, there are other aspects, other attributes of a negative garment, uh, uh, unholy, unrighteous garment, like if Romans uh, 13 describes that, that we ought to, let's see, he says... Well, just verse 14, the whole from verse 11 following, but verse 14 says, put on, so not just put off, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. If you put on, if you put off that stuff, you put on Christ and you want to honor and glorify him. The scripture says that we lay aside the deeds of darkness. Romans 13, uh, verse 12 says, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4, really a parallel letter that Paul wrote with Colossians. He said, lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted. And it's not good. Corruption is not good. We, we set those aside not to save them for later. I imagine those people who were stoning Stephen didn't just set aside their garments and said, hey, Paul, take them and sell them and give the proceeds to the poor. No. After they were done killing God's witness, God's messenger, they went and grabbed their cloaks and put them back on. In this context, you don't put those things back on. Those are filthy. Those are corrupt. They are not honored to God. Lay them all aside permanently. And not just, this is in, in, a, in a, a way that the Greek wrote it that would indicate a, a once-for-all once kind of an action. But I tell you what, you, we continually need to lay aside these things. It's, it's a, an iterative process, laying aside. The next time you have a conflict, will you put aside wrath and anger and slander and... Um, Malice and abuse of speech or mouth, or will you just let you know things fly and you'll you'll give them what for and you'll defend yourself and you'll justify yourself? Remember, one of the elders in our church in Texas would say, "You know, we our argument, my argument with my wife would go on until I would finally recognize that I was wrong," which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying not that the woman's always right, but that he was wrong in that case and he needed to identify it and repent of it and turn away from it, laying aside his own rights, his justifying his own self being the head of the household and all that kind of thing. No. Let them go. Let them turn them all aside. Well, he lists these these uh, attributes, and these are not good good things. It's interesting that this, even this translation, what does it say over here? Yeah. These two words, wrath and anger. This is the Legacy Standard Bible you can see on the on the screen. This over here is New American Standard. It says anger and wrath. So it, it Point being, these two words are often used interchangeably, often used in connection with each other. But if we, if we wanted to, for sake of time, wanted to maybe make a distinction between them, and the, by the way, wrath and anger, anger, wrath, uh, appear many times, as I mentioned in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, most often, God's anger, God's wrath. We think, oh, but God is so just and so loving and kind. He doesn't have any angry bones in his body. Well, he doesn't have bones or body. He's God as a spirit. God the Father is it. But you're missing the point. He is a holy and righteous God. Of course he has wrath. Of course he has anger. Of course he's disgusted with people who choose wickedness instead of righteousness that is in his, and purity and, and cleanliness. Not that we need to wash our bodies, but cleanliness of spirit and soul. Of course he's angry with these things. He is a righteous God. He has indignation, not indigestion, indignation every day. And not just against sin, but against sinners. 
against people who violate his law, who especially and specifically and ultimately refuse to honor and obey his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to him. God the Father said, listen to my son. And so many people don't. And we want Christ to have the glory that is due him. That's what we desire. That's what we want for this uh, wicked world, that people would bow their knee before Christ. The anger or the wrath of humans is spoken about many times in Scripture, of course. Uh, Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These ideas of, of wrath and rage, another, another way to translate it, is, is uh, spoken of so much here. If you could uh, describe this word wrath, and, or in other translations, anger, this idea uh, as the, the first word here, it is, it is the, maybe the first response toward an offense. It is how, what, how do we view, how do we think in our hearts when somebody has had a conflict with us? Maybe we didn't get what we expected, um, what we, what we thought we deserved, what we'd agreed upon even. I have been wronged. This isn't fair. Uh, how dare you do this to me? This kind of thing. Do we get angry? Do we become bitter in spirit? Do we become uh, resentful in our, in our soul? Is there an estrangement between me and the other person? How does this conflict advance Christ-likeness? Because truly, we should expect conflict. It's not a, it should not be an unexpected thing. We should expect it in, in uh, families, uh, marriages. We should expect it to co, uh, co-workers, you know, workplace, even a Christian environment. Yeah, we're going to have conflict, different things and unexpected things, and, and we just need to deal with each other and be patient. In fact, that's truly the antidote. Patience, uh, long-suffering uh, comes in play here. There is much in the Proverbs that speak about anger, angry men. Uh, Proverbs twelve sixteen says, An ignorant fool's anger is known at once. <laughs> An ignorant fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals disgrace. I have just been, been shamed or been the butt of a joke. I'm not going to answer a fool according to his father. I will conceal my disgrace. What's the big deal? Words. What do I care that what they're saying? Uh, the psalmist elsewhere says, If God is for me, why should I fear what man can do for me, to me, against me? If God is for me, that's what I want to know. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger just there, and it is present. Lest you think, oh, it's easy enough to, to subdue anger. Oh, I can lay that anger aside any time. Well, Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. You think, oh, it's easy enough to, to not or to control my anger. You've got to be a strong, strong guy to be able and, and lady or a young person to rule or have self-control, rule your own spirit. That's a hard thing. You can't really do it apart from the work of Christ in your in your lives. Scoffers set city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Proverbs 29, verse 8. Again, most of anger, most of wrath is spoken of against, or of God, his wrath toward us. Again, if you want to make a distinction, I introduced this a while ago. Anger, or this first word, here translated wrath, how interesting, is um, is the response, the initial response that, that kind of resorts to bitterness or, or resentfulness in our lives. Whereas this second word, wrath or anger, again, they're back and forth, uh, has to do with burning. 
a burning, but not just a burning, like a smoldering thing, more like an eruption, more like a, an explosion, more like a, well, kind of like a volcano. You've been percolating over this for a while. There's been an upset, and you are about ready to explode. So many times, the, the root of this word uh, is, uh, it can be used to describe uh, the action of burning, especially in, in the worship, in the tabernacle, the temple, uh, burning of incense or burning of sacrifices. It speaks about uh, the action of burning. It talks about what is burned, offerings or sacrifices. Incense is burned. And then also the place of burning or the incense altar. And you think, what is this, all this emphasis on burning? Well, that's what is going on in, in our hearts when we have an upset, a conflict, and we are burning and we are about ready to explode against the other person. We're going to let them know what is on our mind. We're going to have a piece of your mind. And often people say, uh, you can't spare giving a piece of your mind. You, you, you need every little bit you can, you can, you know, can afford. You, you cannot, uh, cannot do that. But usually, if anger is, is an attitude, again, it's unfortunate that these two words are, are translated I don't know how they are in your translations, but the, the first word has to do with the attitude. But now we're getting into action, and I'm ready to, to, to let people know what's on my heart. And it's interesting how many times in Scripture uh, we see the combination of uh, being moved with anger or being enraged with anger. or or There are so many times in Scripture, mostly from God's perspective, but also from man's perspective, where you have anger, but then there is the rage that comes with it, and that is anger being expressed, anger being spoken, anger being carried out uh, uh, in the in the sense of going to cast these people into jail, or God and his anger and his wrath casts people out of the promised land. You are out because of your wickedness. So there's all these different ideas where wrath and anger, anger and wrath, however you want to put it, has to do with this, you might even call it a hot temper. I mean, you're just running hot all the time. No, a, a cool spirit is what we want. Something that is not so easily offended. Isn't that what love is? Not easily offended, does not keep a record of wrong, suffered. I don't know, how, for those who have been married for years, I don't know, um, we haven't done it so much in our in our family. Uh, one of the ladies back when we were married gave us a book and says, "Write down all your your thanksgivings and your praises. Wonderful experience. That would have been good if we'd done that. But what if you had done from the moment of your wedding, in the course of the wedding, even and and following the weeks, months, uh, uh, weeks, months, years after that, if you kept a record of every time that your spouse offended you?" Deliberately, they did it. I know she did it. He did it on purpose, just to see how to. And you kept a record of those wrongs, and maybe, and she did the same, or he did the same, and maybe every anniversary you brought out your lists and you said, "Honey, I love you. Let me read all your disgusting things you've done against me." Would that be sweet? Would you be married long? No, you would not, because love does not do that. Don't keep a record of wrong suffered. Don't, don't uh, be explosive. And this goes back to the rabidash, you know, rabidash, um, oh, most inflammable rabidash. No, we want to cool things down. We want to keep things calm and peaceful instead of being explosive or blazing of the fires. We don't want to do that. Lay aside those things. If anger and wrath were to continue, we would start being malicious this third word here, we would start having ill will or desire wickedness. We would want to take vengeance upon other people. We will get our a day in court or we will have our time to uh, bring about, uh, to cause uh, difficult and distressing circumstances on that other person, which Romans 12 says, don't take your own vengeance. 
And I'd like just to paraphrase that. You, you, you're not powerful enough to get your own vengeance. Why don't you leave wrath to God? He knows better. And even in Jesus' case, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You don't know all the situations. You don't know all the conditions or the circumstances regarding this. Why don't you leave it to God? Why don't you endure patiently, suffer even for Christ's sake, suffer for righteousness' sake? Not because you're a, a jerk and disobedient and, and being all nasty and rude-like, but because you are representing Christ in your life. And if people are upset with that, and they find fault with you, and they want to cancel you or censor you or get you out to an island, leave you there, and let you die, that should not make us resort to anger, wrath, or malice against them. We want pity. Just an example. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, and the two guys crucified next to him were hurling hurling abuse at him. This kind of brings into the next thing, slander and abusive speech. These two guys next to him, suffering the same fate, were blaspheming Jesus. Until one, at some point, how did that happen? I have no idea. How did that one uh, uh, on Jesus write? How did he get right with God? I don't know how that came, apart from a supernatural work of God. But Jesus, in his kindness, said, no. You're not coming. I heard what you said just a few hours ago, blaspheming me. You are going, no, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow, that's the kind of attitude that we have for people who are lambasting us, who are finding all kind of fault against us. Now, there are other things that we can do, of course, but taking vengeance, taking things in their own hands, being wrathful, being angry, wishing ill against other people, no, we don't pay back evil for evil. In fact, the uh, scripture says, uh, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That word overcome is is not just a, a kind of a, a weak kind of an idea. This is a powerful thing. Don't be vanquished or made a slave of or somehow subdued. Don't be subdued by anger, but through, or by evil, but through your goodness, through your love, through your patience, through your blessing, giving a blessing instead of a curse, you overcome evil in that way. Now, sometimes you don't. The psalmist says, you know, uh, I'm for peace, but when I speak, Lord, they're for war. So I'm trying to live at peace with all people, but good grief, work with me here. And they, the world does not. We should not be characterized by blasphemy. I'll just summarize this here quickly as we conclude. Blaspheming other people. Usually we think of blasphemy against God when we attribute false things to God or refuse to acknowledge true things about God, that speaking things that are not right about God. But we can do this toward each other as well blasphemy toward one another. We speak against other people that, in, in such a way that we want to harm them. We want to embarrass them. We want to expose them for the hypocrite that they are, which, surprise, everybody's a hypocrite. We, we, we do not. Unfortunately, we do, our, our public face does not always match with our private face. Surprise. Um, it's kind of like People would say, well, I don't want to be part of any church because of a bunch of hypocrites. And I, I response, a response is, well, you know, there's room for one more. Come on. Everybody puts on a, a public face and, and has a private face. That's not a righteous thing. That's just a reality. We need to be men and women of integrity where those things line up. And however you look at it, whatever kind of situation, we are uh, real and true. But when we speak blasphemously against other people, we want to expose them. We want to revile them. We want to defame them. We want to just bring them down a notch or two or just totally cancel them out of culture. 
just uh, persona non gratas, you know, that nobody wants to be part of a relationship with this person. We will insult them, you know, and you think anger, wrath, malice, and now we're using our tongue with, with slander and an abusive speech. Well, that's oftentimes the only thing that we have really to do with other people. We're not going to start punching each other or declaring nuclear war and all that kind of stuff because that's beyond most of our power. But words, oh, we can use words. We can get on the Twitter, on the Facebook, on the Instagram, whatever thing you want, and we can, you know, we can just give, we can let people know about this person over here. Oh, did she wrong me or he did it? And that is just wicked and foolish. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be willing to be misunderstood? Now, you want to be, again, you want to live at peace, you want to be, speak truth, you want to be uh, uh, instructive in this, but Sometimes you can't, you can't help people. You can't do this. And our, our response should not be, well, I'm gonna, you know, I tried the easy way. I tried the Christ way now. I'm gonna try my way. Don't resort to that. Trust God in His leadership, His shepherding. I mean, good grief. He saved you. He can save other people. This person who's been just a thorn in my flesh for all my life, really. Surprise. God might save that person. And then what were you, what would you be who, who as a Christian was, was being all rude and angry and wrathful against that person? No. You'd be like Christ. Don't let abusive speech out of your mouth. This is the only time in the New Testament where that word abusive speech comes. But it has to do with shameful, obscene, things that are just not proper to say. The word, or, or a variation of this word is used to describe the, the gaunt cows back in the, the, the uh, dream that Pharaoh had back in, in Genesis that, uh, you know, they had the seven wonderful fat cows and then these seven ugly, ugh, I mean, take your breath away kind of ugly cows uh, or other things that are described as shameful, disgraceful. Uh, and this is describing words. Don't let those kind of ugly words that just fall right down to the pit of hell where they came from. You think, well, that's kind of harsh. No. Remember what Jesus said? Don't be concerned with what goes into your mouth, but what comes out, because that exposes, again, what's in the cup, what's in your heart. What is really, who really rules in your heart? If you respond to conflict and anger and upsets in a way that is vile and arrogant and proud and all about yourself, where is Christ in that again? Where is, how, how is your life hidden with Christ and God? How are you justified in Christ, and now I live a new life. I have laid aside these old things, and yet, hey, which you, you kind of comb through the pile of dirty clothes over here and says, where's that one thing that I really like to wear back in the day, when, you know, back when I was a, uh, uh, whatever. And you get that out and put it on, oh, yeah, it feels good. And then you go out and sin with it. No, that's not what we should do. Laying all these things aside, the things that come out of our mouth reveal what is in our hearts. And we want to take care that we would not be characterized by these, by these things anymore. We lay them all aside. Now, it's not to say the list in verse 5 or the list here in verse 8 is comprehensive. And if we just focus on uh, avoiding sexual immorality and impurity and passion, those other things, and here, anger, wrath, malice, uh, we'll be fine. We're, we're getting good. No, this is all in terms of categories. If you were to read, well, in, in Ephesians 4, uh, 31, talked about bitterness mm, or shouting, or what about the, the list lists in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? Lying, thievery, those kinds of things. What Paul's saying here is not a complete list. Uh, sin has many expressions. And, and all these things we should cast aside from our lives because who we are in Christ. 
just one example, and we'll see it more fully beginning of verse 12. How should we respond when we are upset or we have conflicts? Patience. Instead of being hot-tempered and explosive, the, the beautiful corresponding word to wrath or being hot-tempered is long-suffering. Same root is right inside that word, long-suffering. Have you ever had uh, like a birthday candle? You re- those little skinny things, not the ones that you try to play on other people. I've had that. You know, they relight themselves. That's, that's not nice. But the ones that you light and then almost immediately they're just melted right down to the cake. Those are not long-burning. But you've seen some other things. These, these what do they even call them? The 24-hour candles or hurricane, whatever candles that are in the glass. And then they have this amazing resource of, of not just the, the cheap wax, but the really good wax. And it burns for a long time. This is how we ought to do. And kind of, it's interesting. It burns for a long time, but we also ought to be cool in our spirit. I guess that's, it draws in that idea, not, not, easily erupting into things, but but long-suffering, forbearing one another, putting up with each other, enduring each other. And you think, oh, uh, it's easy for people to put up with me, but me putting up with you guys, I mean, this is beyond a supernatural act. No, each of us needs Christ's holy, supernatural work in our lives. Forbearance, patience spoken of here. Is there a reason why the the definition or the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 begins with love is patient. 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 We ought to be patient, long-suffering, slow to anger. Uh, Proverbs 17, 27, we'll end with this. That is, he who holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. You hold back your words. Don't speak everything that's on your mind. You probably don't want those to be recorded and written down, which they already are. God knows what's in our heart. Hold back your words. Um, Proverbs also says, uh, in a multitude of words, in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable. But he who keeps his lips is wise. You have a cool spirit, not easily upset, not easily uh, responding to conflict in anger or wrath or malice or these nasty other things, but showing Christ in all things. That's what we want. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that our behavior, our conduct does not determine our standing before you, but it is an evidence of our standing before you. Wow, that is just tremendous. We know that we're sinners. We know that we continue to foolishly present ourselves as slaves to unrighteousness, but we want to be slaves to you of righteousness or in righteousness. We know that conflicts come. They might have even come this morning. Our will this afternoon just is constant. We, we just sometimes get crossways with each other. We pray that we would be cool in spirit, that we would control our tongues, that we control even uh, expressions on our face of, um, I remember when Nebuchadnezzar, his face changed when he was so angry with, with those three servants of yours, and yet we want to be cool in spirit, we want to be like Christ who kept entrusting himself to you who judges righteously. We pray that we would be agents of your redemption in this world. It's not about us, it's not about our reputation so much, it's about Christ and how other people would be drawn to the glories of Christ, what he is doing in my life, your life, to change us, to be more like him. We pray that your redemption, your redemptive work would continue. We pray that you would uh, prevail, and we know that you will, over unbelief and disobedience and hard-heartedness and pride and arrogance and, and condescension and violence that we see all over this world. 
We pray for the peace and the righteousness of, of Jesus to come in his lordship very soon. We pray in his name. Amen.